0: <laughs> Sorry. So today's message is called The Table and the Tower. After the flood, the world became a very different place, and um, Noah's sons became the fathers of many different people groups and nations. And the last um, two chapters we're going to look at today, Uh, chapter 10 and 11, uh, records the lineage of these people and uh, lays the geographical sort of introduction to what would follow in Israel's history. As we said, we get maps, we get all kinds of maps. Topographical maps, maps related to climate, rainfall, political maps. Um, Walter is uh, reading a book that's going to go in the library soon, um, Maps, Biblical Maps, uh, to help you visually see what's happening. (coughs) But, you know, even though we can't actually see these boundaries, with the naked eye, like from space, doesn't look like that. Um, That doesn't mean that those boundaries aren't real. In fact, God is aware of national identity. God recognizes these boundaries. And God uses them. James Hudson Taylor was a British pro- Protestant Christian missionary that went to China. And he formed the China Inland Mission, which still exists today. Their headquarters are in Singapore, and they serve um, over 2,400 churches in the entire East Asia. He was known for his sensitivity to the Chinese culture. He was criticized in England for the fact that he dressed like the Chinese, and he ate their food, and he learned their language. And this uh, different approach to uh, recognize someone else's cultural identity and uh, be sensitive to that, endeared him to the people and helped him reach them. The Lord can use national identity in other ways as well, such as the ways that we see in Genesis when out of one man he chose to build a nation, a chosen nation that would stand apart, stand separate from all the other nations, Um, a a priestly nation to show the world what could be. (coughs) The table of nations is the heading that we give to chapter 10 of the Bible. I'm not going to read uh, all of it, but let's read together Genesis uh, chapter 10, the first few verses, and we're going to see how this uh, establishment or this introduction to the nations of the world um, shows us once again something of God's grace and mercy as we bring this idea of national identity and heritage through to believers today and connect it as we are trying to do with every message. <coughs> so it says, the sons of uh, Joseph, one of Noah's sons, um, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, and it goes on and on uh, and lists uh, his sons, the sons of Gomer, and it lists his sons, the son of Javan, and it lists the sons. um, And it says, uh, From these, the coastlands of the nations were divided into their lands, Everyone according to his tongue, according to their families, by their nations. (coughs) And then in verse 6, the Hamites, the the cursed son. The sons of Ham were uh, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So Ham's son was cursed, Canaan. We recognize immediately these names already. Oh, Canaan, yeah, okay. And it lists the sons of those sons. Cush was the father of Nimrod. In verse 8, he became a mighty man, a mighty one on earth. And it says in verse 10, um, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel uruk Akkad. from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, and so forth, and so forth. Egypt was the father of the Ammonites. It goes on, and Canaan was the father of Sidon, and the Amorites. Later, the families of the Canaanites spread abroad, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, towards Gerar to Gaza, then to Sodom, Gomorrah, Ad, Adama, um, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their language, in their lands and their nations. So I summarized it a little bit there, um (coughs) but we see these geographical boundaries uh, spread out, and when we get to genealogies and um, geography, we start to think, how is this relevant? (laughs) Where do we even begin to apply this? That is what we want to set out today. So I'm praying a little bit late in my message now, but let's pray for this message. Lord, I pray that we may see your sovereignty at work here and we may recognize it in our lives today. Amen. So you can think of it maybe as a spreadsheet, right? Um, a, A table in that way. You have um, uh, Shem, Ham, and Joseph up here, and then you have first generation, second generation down here, and you can write in the names of all the, the, the sons. Or you can think of it as an actual table. We, if we, there's a box and we lay things out nicely and we see how things fit together, <coughs> that is what this is trying to achieve. But the three principal things from this is it shows God's sovereignty in the governance of the world, the governments of the world. It it distinguishes God's chosen people, the Israelites. And it lays the geographical backdrop for all the events to follow. So R.M. Edgar, in one of his sermons about this passage, entitled Citizenship, he says, But indeed, in all moral wisdom, in all duty, uh, whether as private men or citizens, there is but one master, even Christ, from whom we can draw nothing but what is pure and upright. We think that uh, governments and um, politics will always be uh, up to the devices of people, and we bemoan our government, and we uh, entice rebellion, and we use God's word to... uh, further political agendas. But what we read here is that it shows God's sovereignty from the beginning, from the beginning, the nations of the world. But wait a minute, you might say, isn't Satan called the ruler of this present world? Didn't Isaiah allude to the fact that all these nations um, surrounding Israel, were puppeteered by demonic influences? Yes, it does. But we must be cautious as to where that line of thought ultimately goes. Inevitably, if we continue that line of thought, it comes, it, it comes to the question, then how can God be in control? And that's the pitfall, isn't it, for a finite being with finite influence and power, even if we had all the power uh, in the world, we cannot imagine how the one does not replace the other. In other words, how God can be sovereign over all these things, yet the evil uh, rulers and any demonic influences that there might be in places of authority can somehow um, not be contradictory. How can God be in control? We, must o- we, we end up asking and in so, we end up doubting what sovereignty actually means. And we we call into question the ability of God to do what He says He will do. How can God be in control? For an infinite being, that's not a problem. I want us to quickly skip ahead uh, right to the end of the book of Genesis. This is the summary or the theological, you could almost say, epicenter of Genesis. In chapter 50, Joseph says the following in verse 19, speaking after the death of... um, Their father, Joseph's brothers, were concerned that um, he might take vengeance. And he says in the previous verse, am I God? Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Verse 20, but as for you, you intended harm to harm me, but God intended it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many lives. God uses evil for good. He is sovereign when it comes to our authority to government. And this was uh, true for the nation of Israel as well, they should have recognized that the surrounding nations were uh, put there because God declared it to be so. Here's another one in Daniel chapter 4 verse 17. angel comes to, uh, uh, delivers this message, and this is the decree of the watchers, the verdict declared by the holy ones, that the living will know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of mankind, and it gives to it whom he wishes settle over it the lowliest of men. the second point, to distinguish God's chosen people, the Israelites. So as God had set them apart, regardless of how deformed that idea eventually became and it made them prideful and elitist, um, the Ancestry of the Jewish people had always been important and served a practical purpose for the nation. In historical sciences, there has been so many attacks on the authenticity of Scripture, hasn't there? Especially Genesis. Not just the creation account. There has been argued for many years that the origins of the um, nation of Israel, were simply mythology written into their history to establish themselves as divine conquerors, but they're just an amalgamation of nomadic tribes that happened to agree on some things um, and settled in Canaan. That David and Abraham are Uh, akin to Arthurian legends. They're they're not even real people. Well, a few years later, they found archaeological evidence that David was, in fact, a real person, and everyone stopped talking about that. And not long after that, they found evidence that Abraham was a real person, and they kind of stopped talking about that as well. No, it it was to distinguish the nation as God's chosen people um, by drawing a string once again from Noah through to Abram, whom he would choose. This had theological implications and uh, even... The coming of Christ was promised to Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Thirdly, to lay the geographical backdrop for the events to follow. who Written uh, to the people uh, during their desert wanderings, that's when Uh, Moses uh, was moved by the Spirit to actually write all of this down, Genesis through to Deuteronomy uh, which actually ends with um, uh, Moses' death and um, his final exhortation as they kind of went in to Canaan. So this disorganized um, people group established themselves as a nation uh, with a military force, with governing laws, with, uh, um, with purpose. They were about to conquer this land written about from the beginning, Genesis, to Uh, reignite almost these ancient rivalries that began with him and his brothers that were cursed to serve his brothers' sons. This was it. They were ready to conquer this promised land. Throughout all the historical accounts, uh, after that, we encounter these people: the Amorites, the Philistines, um, Nimrod, the world's first tyrant king, built Nineveh, and which was the capital of Assyria. Remember them. So, in other words, God uses national identity in His works, in in His. Uh, plan and for his will. There is something about that distinguishment that matters. This connects back to the command of Adam and Eve and to Noah to go forth and fill the earth. And it connects us to our next major point, the Tower of Babel. So we looked at the the table, now we're looking at the tower. In chapter 11, just the first bit, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As the people journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of uh, Shinor, and they settled there. And they said to each other, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and tar for mortar, Let us build a city and a tower whose top will reach to heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the sons of men built. And the Lord said, The people are one, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another. So the Lord scattered them abroad, from there over the face of the earth, and they stopped building the city. The name of it was called Babel. (coughs) What is happening there? Did God sabotage us? (laughs) No. Before... We see the boundaries of the nations. um, We first see that everyone was united in one language and uh, with one uh, purpose. They had invented the brick, a building material that could be mass produced and easily transported. And they had aspirations, and almost to prevent the uh, natural tendency for uh, a human being to seek community um, among people that are similar, uh, to develop distinct cultures, and to explore, to prevent this natural tendency from occurring. They said let's build a great tower that would reach the realm of the unattainable they weren't actually building a literal tower to heaven they were building a literal tower but the idea that the stars represented the the um, the the divinity the the um God's presence somehow was up there and and to build a tower to reach there would mean we are then among the gods. We are among the divine because we have built, we are standing among it to make a name for themselves. But God showed mercy. Now let me explain to you why what happened was an act of mercy. And we can continue the cycle of sin, and God continues to show us mercy. You see, it wasn't that God was threatened by them. Not at all. But God, knowing the sinful nature that indwells us, that compels our actions if left to our own devices. Imagine what evil and what destructive atrocity humans would have been capable of if we had been single-minded in our worship of self, if the tower had been left standing. That's what God says. Nothing would become impossible for them. Driven by our sinful nature, we would have been on a one-track road to to pre-flood times, to to uh, unimaginable. Uh, Darkness. That's what I believe. That's truly what I believe would have happened. So God was not threatened by them. He showed them mercy by scattering them. And so God once again used language and Distinction of borders for his purpose. You know, I, c- I couldn't help but think of uh, D- Dubai, the tallest building in the world, you know, uh, the Burj Khalifa. It wasn't built out of necessity, it was, um, you know, built as a monument for human vanity. But we can't really compare the two because. All the Burj Khalifa is is just a a giant statue of, you know, of a bunch of rich oil barons. It's not at all the same thing where the world united in their rebellion against God built um, something to, to it's not the same thing. (laughs) It's not the same thing to imagine the gravity of what would have happened if God did not show mercy. You know, ultimately, we're finding ourselves back in Hebrews 11 quite often these days. In Hebrews 11, verse 13 the faith of Adam, the faith of Noah, the faith of Abel, and so forth. In verse 13, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them from afar, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Those who say such things declare plainly that they are looking for a homeland. And certainly, if they had been thinking of the country of which they came, they might have had the opportunity to return. Verse 16, but they desired a better country that is a heavenly one, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So God uses national identity to distinguish those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sins. So you are citizens of another far-off land, and your time here is as pilgrims. You know, I can't help but think about the nation of Israel as they wandered through the desert, and everything that they had experienced, knowing that one day they're going to settle in a permanent place, a land of milk and honey. For them it was Canaan. but we should we should adopt a similar mindset when we think about our heavenly citizenship, and our time on earth? Wouldn't it change the way we see suffering? Wouldn't it change the way we, um, uh, what we value and what we aspire to? Wouldn't it tint these things in a different color? So God uses national identity in many ways, but I'd like to end with Revelation 21. But I saw no temple in this uh, the city, for God, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city had no need for the sun or the moon. To shine in it, the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb was its light. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut all the day, at, at all by day, there is no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. In heaven and eternity, when we are reconciled to God and we live eternally with our Savior. Is there's something of a national identity that will stay with us. So be pilgrims now. As Hebrews tells us, they were pilgrims then. I hope we can learn from that. I hope we can learn Something about the value of our national identity here on earth, and I hope we can learn something about the value of our eternal citizenship in heaven. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for the lessons that we can learn in Genesis and that they form uh, the foundation as scripture is revealed progressively through history, that we have it all here in front of us. May it be our our guide. May it be our final authority when we seek to apply your wisdom in our lives, Lord, as we set out to uphold our testimonies as citizens of heaven, amen.